This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the power forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's uh, make sure that we're in fellowship, bow our heads together. A few moments of silent prayer, use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and uh, then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity and privilege to gather together this morning to study your word, that you have given us your word as an errant, infallible revelation of your will and your view of reality that we might understand and orient our thinking to the way things are. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son who went to the cross to die as a substitute for us, that we might have eternal life. And now... As we continue our study in the Gospel of John, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we are studying, that we might be motivated to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We are on the verge of concluding our study of John. We are now in the last chapter. And next Sunday, we will complete our, I think it's been two and a half year study, of the Gospel of John. I've learned so much about the Gospel of John that I am on the verge of uh, saying, well, why don't we start over so that we can hit the things we didn't quite hit correctly the first time. I'm just kidding. Don't want to scare anybody. We will move on to other things. Now, I'm going to do something a little different this time. And that is we're going to... I want to read the first uh, 14 verses. We We were going to concentrate on verses 15 through 18, or 16, 15 through 17... Because that is the commentary, an explanation of what takes place in the first 14 verses. The first 14 verses represent an event that took place on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, this event takes place in order to teach a spiritual reality that is explained 
in verses 15 through 17. So let's just read through those first 14 verses. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be John and James, the sons of thunder, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, that would be John, the writer of the gospel, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. I just love that. He didn't just jump in or dive in. He just threw himself in. Typical Peter over overwhelmed with enthusiasm. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Now I want you to notice, when they got out upon the land, the fire was there and fish were on it. These aren't the fish that they had caught. Jesus is supplying their need ahead of time. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. Notice how specific John is. He wants us to make sure that we understand what an enormous, unusual catch this was as Christ supplied their their physical sustenance. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.'" None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? That's a causal participle there, because they knew it was the Lord. They had obviously recognized him. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, in verse 14, John tells us in one sense why he is explaining this episode. It has to do with... The fact that John has been giving us witnesses to the resurrection. Mary, the disciples, Thomas, and now it is this this appearance to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. But there is a spiritual significance to what Jesus just did. He's just given them an object lesson. An object lesson is something that is a physical act or a visual aid to teach through a concrete example a spiritual principle. Now, Jesus is going to bring that principle home to Peter in verses 15 through 17. You can, we can't divorce those first 14 verses from 15 through 17. That The first 14 verses, the episode on the Sea of Galilee, sets the context for understanding verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17, we have a well-known and crucial passage. So when they had finished breakfast, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Now, this is one of those passages that I love to teach because it, is, uh, it illustrates the fact that you really can't, can't understand all that's going on in a passage if you don't understand the context of a passage, and if you don't understand the Greek that underlies the passage, because the English does not do justice to what, take, what is taking place in the Greek because of the paucity of English vocabulary. But before we get into the Greek text, we have to do a few things to look at the overall context. Now, whenever you look at a passage you have to make sure you interpret it in light of its context. And there are two basic contexts here. One is the overall context of the Gospel of John, and the other is the immediate context. So first let's look at some things related to the overall context. John wrote with a specific purpose in mind. Frankly, he had two purposes. He states the main purpose in John 20, 30, and 31. It says... Verse 30, many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, that is, these signs have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So he's talking about life. He's talking about gaining life here, and then he's going to talk about an additional level of life in um, uh, John 10. In John 10, Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but to give life, category one, which is the beginning of life, new spiritual life, and to give life abundantly. So there John shows that it's not, he's not simply talking about the acquisition of spiritual life, which is a subject of verse 31, but he is going on to talk about the sustenance of that life. Now, what is important to sustain physical life is physical nourishment. We have to eat. We have to eat nourishing things if we are going to uh, uh, grow healthy bones and that we are going to develop our immune system. And when you give your children food or you let your children eat, I think that if you are a conscientious, responsible parent, you do not let them uh, live their life on the basis of eating uh, the what is it Reese's Pieces cereals or Oreo cereal, I can't believe they put out. I, I just won't. Won't. I don't even want to go there because if I eat Oreo cereal, I will probably become an instant addict. So <laughs> why make things worse? But we know that if we were to survive and live on on a, a diet of um, and I've tried a diet of uh, sugar and candy and ice cream. I don't know. You know, there's something wrong with a fallen, fallen world that, that ice cream can't be a source of nourishment. 
good vitamin. They ought to have you know something along the lines of that, where they have a vitamin fortified uh, Ben and Jerry's or something like that. Maybe we ought to write that in. Live on that, but we can't live on that. We have to have a balanced diet, and that diet has to include all sorts of things that uh, we may not actually enjoy eating. Things such as Brussels sprouts or broccoli or asparagus, or though I love vegetables, I, there, you get a whole array of nourishing vitamins and, and nutrients from eating everything from meat, fish, poultry, everything. We have to eat from a wide range of uh, food groups in order to maintain a balance in a healthy healthy system and, and nourish all of our muscles and blood vessels and, and everything, maintain a good uh, uh, energy level and uh, immune system. Well, this is true in the spiritual realm. Jesus said, first, I mean, John says, first of all, I came that you might, uh, I'm reading these things, that you might have life by believing on his name. But in terms of that second goal that he states over in John 10, that Jesus came to give life abundantly, that abundant life is related to nourishment. Now, much of what John writes in the Gospel revolves around the signs. You have the eight main signs, seven secondary signs that demonstrate who Jesus is and his messianic credentials, and that's covered from chapter uh, 1 through chapter uh, 12. The eighth sign is the sign of the resurrection. But chapters 12... 13, as we have seen, excuse me, chapters 13 through uh, 18, the upper room discourse and the Lord's high priestly prayer we saw is related to the spiritual life. He com- John completely shifts gears at the end of chapter 12. And at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus begins to focus on teaching the disciples spiritual life truth related to his departure. And we went through the study there where Jesus gave them, uh, first he, he got rid of Judas as an unbeliever, excluded him from the context, taught them about the importance of confession there in John 13 where he is demonstrating that again through a visual object lesson of washing their feet. And he, Peter, of course, is a major player there. And Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And, Peter, and the Lord said, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you have no part with me. The context is he's already told them you've all washed, you bathed completely. Uses the Greek word uh, luo to describe their complete bathing and washing. But now you need to be washed, and the Greek word there was nipto, which means a partial washing. And that relates to the fact and illustrates that at salvation we're cleansed of completely justified and cleansed from all pre-salvation sins. But, but in terms of our relationship with the Lord, we still need to... Uh, be partially cleansed whenever we sin. And that's exemplified by the washing of the feet. Now remember, forgiveness is different from justification. Justification is the basis for our eternal salvation and our eternal relationship with the Lord. Justification means that at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that, as we demonstrate, illustrate this, So that the believer who is minus R, that means he lacks righteousness, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 65, 6. When we put our faith alone in Christ alone, then at that instant, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. 
so that God, who is perfect righteousness and absolute justice, looks down on us now. His righteousness is satisfied. His absolute standard is satisfied by the fact that we now possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It doesn't mean Christians are going to be perfect or sinless. But it means that we have been judicially credited with Jesus' perfect righteousness. And so the justice of God can now grant approval to us and God can bless us. And at that same instant, simultaneously, He imputes to us or imparts to us a human spirit and gives us eternal life. That's the dynamic of salvation. As a consequence of salvation, we receive forgiveness. Now, I'm getting off track here. I got a call last night about 9.30, just as I fell asleep, from another pastor who was asking me questions related to this. And I thought, well, I don't know that I've made this as clear either, so I will. Now, forgiveness is a relational term. It's amazing. In our society, we don't understand forgiveness, and we don't understand the difference between forgiveness and legal condemnation. You go back to some of the... uh, more famous trials that have taken place in the last decade, such as the one with uh, O.J. Simpson, and you would hear people say, well, well, I've forgiven him, and implying that, well, he doesn't need to be taken to court now. Forgiveness isn't a legal concept. You don't find forgiveness, the word forgive, mentioned anywhere in the law code of any country. See, forgiveness has to do with my relationship with another person or God's, our relationship with God. It doesn't have to do with, with these words, dikaiosune, which is the same root word for both righteousness and justice. Okay, that's D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. That's a legal term. Dikaiao, the word for justification, is a legal term. This has to do with the fact that if somebody goes out and commits a murder, they are judicially liable for the death penalty. I can forgive them. Let's say they murder somebody in my family. I can forgive them. That does not absolve them of legal guilt. There's a difference between forgiveness and legal guilt or legal condemnation and the legal payment for something. They're two completely different categories. So that in our standard diagram where we talk about the fact that at salvation we enter into a relationship with God and that has two dimensions. One has to do with the eternal uh, relationship with God and the other has to do with temporal fellowship. In our eternal relationship we are justified so that we are declared righteous and have eternal life. But in our temporal relationship we are forgiven. See, this is an eternal relationship, this has to do with our temporal fellowship. And we are forgiven and we're cleansed of all pre-salvation sins. But when we sin, we are immediately out of fellowship in carnality, dominated by the sin nature where we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. That's why we have to confess our sins. 1 John 1, nine gets us back in fellowship and we're forgiven. If you die... With unforgiven sins, you still saved. Because that has to do with top circle reality, justification. It doesn't have to do with bottom circle being out of fellowship. 
Those sins are paid for. The issue down here is not the payment for those sins. The issue here is the recognition of the payment in terms of forgiveness and 1 John 1, 9. So that's what happens with the washing of the feet in John 13. And then Jesus goes on to say that he is going to... Um, gives them a new commandment that he, first of all, that he's going to leave, and he gives them a new commandment that they are to love one another. And at the beginning of John 13, John introduces the chapter by saying and um, that they, they uh, came together. John 13, 1, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, that brings in the theme of John 13 through 17, which is the concept of love. Now, this is one of the interesting things that we have to appreciate in terms of context, is that uh, the word love is used in John 13, John 14, John 15, and John 16. It's not used in John 17, which is the high priestly prayer. Why not? It's not used in John 18, or John 19, which is Jesus going to the cross. It's not using John 20, which is the resurrection. Why not? Well, the reason is that when Jesus gave a command, back in John 13, he said, you are to love one another as I have loved you. Notice the command, love one another. John 13 through John 16 is going to explain how that takes place. It's based on confession of sin, Fellowship, that's what John 13 is all about. I mean, John 15 is all about abide in me. John 14, John 16 bring in the whole facet of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the importance of dependence on the Holy Spirit in this church age. So the ability to fulfill the command to love one another is based upon cleansing of sin, fellowship, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The second part of the command is the example part. Love one another as I have loved you. What's the function of the high priestly prayer? How I love you. I pray for you. Jesus Christ in his intercessory role as our high priest is praying for us and we understand the dynamics of the prayer. We understand what his goal for our life is. John uh, 18, 19, and 20 is the crucifixion. That's his sacrifice as a substitute for us. That is the as I have loved you. That is the model. So we see the explanation of the mandate and the basis for its uh, living out in our lives in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And then in John 17 through John 20, we see the exemplification of what Jesus means by how he loves us. He loves us not by some sort of sentimental, uh, uh, emotional uh, wrapping his arms around us and saying, Oh, I know you hurt and I feel your pain. You know, it's not this kind of simpering sentimentality that we have today. It's done by actions, by doing the right thing and what's best for people. And in fact, the only time you have anybody uh, throwing him, their arms around him is Mary. And he says, don't hold on to me, Mary. I've got to go to heaven because then you will have an, indeed a closer fellowship. Well, that's the, that's the background is understanding that what, what, uh, John is, is teaching for us, is presenting for us in those chapters. And in there, what we see is that some interesting statistics on the use of the word love. Now, when we come to John 15 through 17, Jesus engages in this interchange with, with uh, Peter about Peter's love for the Lord. And there's a shifting back and forth between synonyms. 
using the agapao and phileo, the two Greek words for love. Now let's look at how these words are used in John. I have a little breakdown on the overhead. It helps us to understand something about the emphasis here. Agapao is used 27 times in the Gospel of John, only seven of which occur before chapter 13. That tells us that after chapter 13, love is a major theme. It's not used at all in 1920, I mean, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And so you skip from 16, all of a sudden now you have it used um, in a very concentrated way in 15 through 17. Um, Agape, the noun, is used seven times, uh, only once before chapter 13. Phileo is used 13 times, only four of which occur before chapter 13. And philos, the noun love, is used six times, only two times before chapter 13. So what does that tell you? Just the, the proportionate use of the word tells us that love is a major, major subject in these last chapters of John. And we have to understand what they mean. Notice what Jesus says about love. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we measure love? This is a major thing in our society. People don't understand love. We think of love as some sort of of emotion, how we feel about someone. Except the Bible doesn't express it that way. The criteria for your love for the Lord is not based on how you feel about God. It is not something, therefore, that is going to be generated by coming to church and singing certain kinds of songs, praise songs, set to certain kinds of music. You see, this is one way in which bad theology affects bad worship. See, everything is is ultimately generated by somebody's understanding of Scripture. And if you think of love as primarily an emotion and a certain attitude toward God and the purpose for the church meeting is to generate that, then what you do is you have a certain worship style, that's what they call it today, where you have certain kinds of music that is going to produce, try to produce this sort of what I call sentimental, ooey-gooey mindset about Jesus. And that's why this kind of music is adopted. But because the underlying assumption there is that the criteria for love, the measure for love, the way you know whether you're loving God is by how you feel. And how many times I've heard people say, oh, I came to church this morning and I met Jesus this morning. I just feel like I was close to God. Well, you know, since God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwell within me, whether I feel like it or not, I'm always really close to God. It's not based on how I feel. It's based on what I know, what the Scripture says. So Scripture says the criterion for love is obedience. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And when we studied that, we saw that when we're given a little bit of revelation and we understand that and we are obedient to that, then on the basis of that, there is continually increasing uh, disclosure of spiritual truth to us and our relationship to God advances. But God is not going to just sort of drop the whole thing in our lap at the beginning and... Uh, 
And that's what some people want. I, well, when I understand everything, then I'll start being obedient. Then I'll, I'll trust the Lord. So the Lord says, no, I'm going to give you a little bit. If you reject that, then I'm not going to give you any more. John 14:23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. And that's talking about fellowship. Abiding meno there for abode always relates to fellowship. John 14, 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So there we see from those passages, love is related to obedience. The biblical criterion for how much we love God is our obedience to His Word. And that reminds us that love is based on knowledge. If we don't know anything about God, we can't love God. We can't love whom we do not know. And what happens is a lot of people come along and they generate within their own soul some concept of what God is like, and then they fall in love with that image of God that they've created in their own soul. And then they come to church and they sing uh, wonderful little songs that, that, that are very emo- that, where the music generates certain kinds of emotion, and then they go home thinking they had a great spiritual experience with God that morning, and all they did was they just really enjoyed themselves a lot that morning. And they didn't get anywhere. Now, the next thing we have to look at in terms of context is not just the overall thrust of John in terms of what, what Jesus has taught about love, but we have to look at the immediate context, which is eating. Eating is the immediate context. Jesus is demonstrating through an object lesson the fact that he is supplying food for them. That's the analogy for the fact that they, as apostles... And by application, pastors are to provide spiritual food for the sheep. That's the point he's illustrating. He is the one who provides the food. He is the one who provides the sustenance. He did it two ways. First of all, he already had some fish on the shore. And secondly, he told them where to put their nets. Now, I'm not sure whether that involved a miracle, a function of his omniscience, or just the fact of his physical position. I have been told that the Sea of Galilee is such that the refraction of light on the lake is such that when you stand, that, that often the people fishing a hundred yards or so offshore will have a spotter on the shore. And with the way the light refracts on the lake, the spotter on the shore can tell where the schools of fish are out in the water and will then relay to the, the people in the boats where to throw the nets. So that could be, it could be that this is no miracle at all. It is just simply the fact that Jesus is in the right position and he can look out there and see where the fish are and tell them, look, you guys keep throwing your, your nets in the wrong place. I'm going to tell you the correct place to put your, put your nets. And that, of course, I think indicates the fact that Jesus is the one who sets the priorities for the church and for the pastoral ministry. One of the greatest problems today is that people and pastors and churches have their priorities all backwards. You see, Jesus told Peter, it's interesting, it keeps coming back to Peter. Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, who am I? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And the Lord said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Notice what Jesus said. 
It's on this rock, that is faith, doctrinal perception of who Jesus is, that I will build my church. He didn't say that the pastor will build the church. He said, I build the church, the pastor feeds the sheep. What's happening today is that pastors are expecting Sunday school teachers or somebody else to somehow feed the sheep, and the pastor is supposed to go out and build the church. It's the pastor's responsibility to build the church from 20 people to 200 people or 5,000 people. And so because pastors have misunderstood the command and the job description, they're out there using all the salesmanship gimmicks of the world in order to build a church. And it works, doesn't it? And we've all seen these churches, and they may go out and build a church of 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. And I know of one church in the Chicago area that is now the largest church in, in the country, some fifteen to 20,000. And it was built on this whole salesmanship approach to church growth. And because that was so popular and so effective, now everybody in the, in the country is modeling their churches after this. And, and the catch words you hear are, are seeker-sensitive. That, that was his thing, was that we want to have a church that is sensitive to seekers. And a seeker is defined as somebody who is somewhat spiritually curious, but they're, they're a little put off by going to church for some reason. And, and what he did was he went around in good salesmanship fashion, and he had a survey. And he would go up and down the streets, knocking on everybody's door, and he would ask three or four questions such as, well, are you going to church anywhere? And if they were, he really didn't try to uh, steal them from another church. Uh, he just said, great, that's fine. But if they weren't going to church, because he's after unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary. That's the, that's the terminology they use. And uh, so he would find somebody who wasn't going to church and say, now, now, why don't you go to church? Well, you know, they sing those old songs, and, you know, I like, I, I, I like rock, and, and I'm, it's just so antiquated, all that music, so, so I, I just don't feel comfortable, and I don't know the words, and, and so I'm, I'm not comfortable, or, or, or that church is so big, I have to park so far away, I really don't want to get there and have to walk, or, or um, you know, the, the, the you know, pastors always preach against against all these negative things about sin. I want something positive and uplifting. So after he collected his survey of what everybody wanted, and what made them uncomfortable, he decided he would get, do away with all those things that made people uncomfortable. And that instead of making unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary sing songs they didn't know and sing a style of music they didn't know, well, what we'll have is we'll have a, we'll have a little uh, Christian combo up in front, you know, a little Christian band with a lead guitar and a good-looking girl singing soprano. And, and uh, they'll basically sing the songs. If anybody wants to sing along, they can. And if they don't, we're not going to make them. And, uh, oh, he had great success, and the church really grew, and then at one point he decided maybe he needed to teach something a little doctrinal, so he started a series on sin, and I'm told that after about three weeks, the attendance was cut in half, and the deacon said, maybe you shouldn't preach against sin anymore, so he decided he wouldn't, and then attendance came back, and people were happy once more. Recent doctoral dissertation analyzing all the dynamics there, which was not written as a critical dissertation, by the way, but was just simply written by a sociology uh, major, guy working on a Ph.D., uh, as an analysis of what went on, made a lot of in, what we would uh, think are interesting observations, such as at this particular church there were over 300 full-time pastors on staff. Got quite large. You know, that's bigger than most churches they had. And you would be surprised how many of those pastors did not even own one single systematic theology book. 
Not one of them owned a single systematic theology book. Out of 300 pastors, not one owned a book on Bible doctrine. Not even basic doctrine. Not one had a degree from any seminary because, well, you know, they were afraid that if somebody went to seminary, they might, their, their thinking might somehow be, be, be made rigid to think in some kind of traditional church mentality like you needed to teach doctrine or something. And, uh, and that would just stifle their whole creativity. So anyway, that has become, sad to say, that's become the model today. And pastors are out there trying to build the church. Jesus says, I build the church. You feed the sheep. That's the measure of whether or not you love me. And that's what he is reminding Peter of here. So the, the whole context of verses 1 through 14 is to demonstrate the fact that there is the importance of physical, I mean, of spiritual nourishment and the importance of eating in the spiritual life. And eating is often used as a metaphor in the scripture for the spiritual nourishment of feeding on God's word. Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah writes, Thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. And here it's the picture of the fact that when we hear the word of God, we accept it, we take it in. And just as we eat food, we exercise our volition whether or not to eat it, to chew it up, to swallow it. Once we swallow it, uh, non-voluntary, involuntary muscles take over and begin to break down the food and digest it, go through the whole digestive uh, process, and the, nour- the nutrients are broken out, and then the bloodstream takes them out to feed and nourish all the cells in the body and to strengthen the muscles, etc. And that's the same dynamic that takes place in spiritual growth. You come and you learn, you eat the Word. You make a volitional decision whether or not you're going to accept the Word and make it a part of your life, part of your thinking. Once you do that, then the, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is analogous to those involuntary muscles. He's the one who takes that truth, breaks it down, and makes it usable in the soul. And that's called epinosis. That's the difference between gnosis, or academic knowledge, and epinosis, which is uh Usable, spiritually usable knowledge has been converted by God, the Holy Spirit. So this is an important metaphor that is used again and again in the scriptures in order to uh, emphasize the fact that we need nourishment. Peter learned the lesson. If you go over to First Peter, Peter says that we are, commands us, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. He understands that spiritual growth only takes place by feeding on the Word. And then he concludes the epistle, or his second epistle in 2 Peter 3.18, by saying, grow by means of grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Growth is not on the basis of coming to church and having some sort of emotional experience with Jesus. Uh, Growth is the result of learning and taking in the Word of God so that it can transform the way we think about life. It's called renewing the mind in Romans 12.2. Well, when Jesus comes to Peter here in this whole episode, some people think that, that when, when Jesus engages in this conversation with Peter, this is the point of Peter's forgiveness and reinstatement. I remind you that in Matthew 26.33, Peter had been told by Jesus that he would, uh, that he would betray him. 
And Peter answered and said in his little dogmatic fashion, Lord, even though all may fall away, notice how he compares himself to everybody else. That's important for understanding what the dynamic of verse 15. Even though all may fall away because of, because of you, I will never fall away. And, of course, he betrayed the Lord three times. And uh, as a result of that, the Lord forgave him. But he's already been forgiven. If he hadn't been forgiven, he wouldn't have thrown himself out of the boat, number one. Number two, we know that he, Jesus already appeared to Peter alone on the Resurrection Sunday. He was about the second or third appearance was to Peter alone that afternoon. And it was at that point that Peter realized his forgiveness for his betrayal. And at this point, there's no sign of any embarrassment, any sign of shame, any sign of reticence coming into the Lord's presence. I mean, as soon as he sees the Lord on the shore, he just can't wait to get to him and just throws himself out of the boat. So this is not talking about the reinstatement of Peter, but is giving Peter the priorities for his apostle ministry. And by extension, that will apply also to the pastor. Now, there's a prerequisite to this that the Lord is emphasizing here for Peter, and that is that there has to be an orientation to grace to begin with. That produces genuine humility. Grace orientation is related to humility, because in humility we realize that it's not up to us, it's up to God. And the fact that Peter has already been forgiven is orienting Peter to humility. He is humble here. He is not, you don't see the arrogance that you see of Peter earlier. What did he say? If everybody else falls away, but I won't. Now look at what he, what, how Jesus phrases the question. See, J- Jesus is so smart. I mean, he's just so subtle. The way he slips this question in here. He rem- he's reminding Peter of what he said. Peter said, though everybody else falls away, I won't. So the, Jesus, Jesus says, do you love me more than everybody else? Do you love me more than everybody else? Remember how arrogant you were? Have you learned your lesson? Where is the, uh, have you got a little grace orientation and humility now? And of course that came from his recognition of his forgiveness. So we read in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Uh, that's, you know, we can translate that into English, Simon Johnson. Just see if anybody's paying attention this morning. So I say, Simon Johnson, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Now notice the Greek words I've put in the text on the overhead. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, do you love me? Agapao. More than these. But when Jesus answers, I mean, when Peter answers down here, he doesn't answer by saying, Yes, Lord, I agapao you. He says, I phileo you. There's a difference. Now, this is an important distinction to make. What we see here uh, is that there are various synonyms that are, that are um, used in this passage. Not only do you have synonyms for, uh, for love, you also have synonyms for knowledge. If you look at the passage, he says, you know that I love you, oida. But in the next verse, he's going to shift to gnosko. So there's synonyms for knowledge. 
There's synonyms for love, there's synonyms for knowledge, and then Jesus is going to give him a command to tend my sheep. And here we have the Greek word bosco, and in the next verse, the second time Jesus states this, he says, shepherd my sheep, and he shifts to poimino, which is the word for pastoring or shepherding, and then he's going to shift back to bosco. And here he calls the, the lambs arnia, and later he's going to call them adult sheep, probosco. And so what we see here is that there is, a, uh, there is a shifting back and forth between various synonyms. And we have to understand what's going on here because it's, it's pretty fascinating. Now, the circle that I have up on the overhead represents the field of meaning for a particular word. So you have a word like love. And the word agapao would describe this field of meaning. And then you have another word like phileo. Now, there's a certain area as synonyms that these words overlap. And that's where the two circles overlap. But there are certain... Oh, you can hardly see that on the overhead. Well, you can imagine there are two circles up there. Uh, The red circle, you can barely make that out, I think, uh, represents one field of meaning, the green circle another. But you see there are certain areas that are distinct, that, that... One word has certain shades of meaning that are not present in every other synonym. Sometimes synonyms look more like this, where where you have one word that is a broad area and has a general meaning, and then the second word is, is, is just a subset of that. It's a more specific meaning than the broader meaning. And that's what we have in words like Bosco and uh, Poimino. In uh, Bosco, you have a more specific word, meaning to, to feed. Whereas Poimino covers the whole gamut of responsibilities that a shepherd might have. But if you have these kind two synonyms working like this, where you have a general and a specific, and they're used synonymously, then the spe- more specific... the field of meaning that the more general word is talking about. What I mean by that is when it comes along and you see Bosco twice used synonymously with Poimino, you can't go to Poimino and say, well, shepherding involves doing uh, all these other activities that shepherds do. Uh, Bosco defines the, the only area of shepherding that is analogous, and that is feeding, bringing nourishment to sheep. So when it uses the word shepherd, he's using it in that same sense. The role of the shepherd in bringing nourishment. He's not talking about the role of the shepherd in picking ticks off the sheep. It's not talking about the role of the shepherd in, uh, uh, in, in birthing baby lambs. It's not talking about the role of the shepherd in uh, pulling fleas off the sheep or in fleecing the sheep. And uh, Although some churches major in fleecing the sheep. It's talking about one area of pastoral function, and that is feeding the sheep. So we have to look at these synonyms in order to interpret the passage. There are four sets of synonyms here. Agapao and phileo are the first ones that I want to talk about. When Jesus says, do you love me? Agapao has a broader sense of meaning 
than phileo does. Phileo is more precise. When, when God uses, for example, when phileo is used in John, it represents an intensity and a specificity of love. It talks about Jesus' love for his disciples. He, he uses that word phileo. Phileo is also used in Revelation 3 in the context of the letter to the Laodiceans right before we have this statement that Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock if anybody will let me in. Right before that, the verse before that, in uh, Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, I lo- God says, this is church I love, and it's phileo. Unbelievers are never the object of phileo love. Phileo love has an intimacy and an intensity that is not necessarily present in agapao. It might be. But when you use phileo, that's what you're emphasizing, is the intimacy and intensity of that love. So when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? He's asking him, remember the subtext here, how do you know if you love the Lord? You keep his commandments. So now he's saying, okay, Peter, are you going to keep my commandments? You were back here mouthing off about how you weren't going to betray me. If everybody else fell away, you wouldn't fall away. Well, are you going to be more obedient than everybody else? Are you going to pay attention now? Are you going to submit yourself to my authority? And Peter, showing his typical enthusiasm and that he learned his lesson, goes a step further than what the Lord asks. He said, you know, I phileo you. I've learned my lesson and I have an intense, intimate devotion to you now because I realize the extent of my forgiveness and what grace is all about, and, and I'm more devoted to you than I ever was before. So this shows a change in Peter and that he has come to understand grace and the importance of humility. So Peter's, Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then the Lord says to him, Tend, Bosco, which means to feed my sheep. That's the priority. Feed the sheep. And here for the word sheep, he uses the word that's in the lower left there, arnia. Arnia refers to baby lambs. So what is the role of the pastor towards the immature believer, the baby believer? Feed him. Give him doctrine. Teach him the truth of God's Word. That's the pastor's responsibility is to feed the baby lambs. Well, Jesus wants to make sure Peter understands the issue. So in verse 16, he, he changes the question a little bit. He, or he comes back and asks him a second time. And he says, uh, verse 16, he said to him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And here he, again he uses the word agapao. Now I want you to notice this. He's using the general word agapao in verse 1, I mean in the first question, Peter responds with phileo. In the second question, he asks, do you love me? Still the general word. And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And there he uses the word uh, phileo again. And now Jesus says, okay, shepherd my sheep. Here he shifts the word to poimino. And it's adult sheep. Shepherd my sheep, the probata. And it also involves the primary aspect is feeding. You not only need to teach doctrine to the young believers, you need to teach advanced doctrine to the mature believers. The church is like a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, out there in the congregation, in any congregation, you have 
uh, baby believers and you have adult believers. And in the teaching, there has to be something for everybody. And you can, you know, some things you're going to hear and you're not going to understand it. And that's just like sitting down as a three-year-old and you've got a tough steak in front of you. And you need to sometimes just push that off to the side and just focus on the, uh, the rice and the mashed potatoes and eat the dessert. And then as you grow and mature and you're, you uh, develop the, your, your muscles a little more, then you can tackle the tough steak. But it's a matter of something's there for everybody, and it's not necessarily meant, when I get through teaching, that everybody's going to grab everything that I've said that particular morning. There's something for everybody. So you have to feed the baby believers and feed the adult sheep. Now we go on to the, verse 17. And Jesus says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And here uh, Jesus says, uh, Jesus turns to Phileo, do you have this intense love for me? And Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Now, what's interesting here is the shift in also in the words for knowledge. At, at the beginning, when he uses oida, Oida indicates an intuitive knowledge, and and Peter is appealing to Jesus' omniscience. You know that I love you. You have this omniscience. It's a more general term. Then when he comes down to verse 17, he's going to shift to gnosko, which means you know by experience. You know, you've seen me. I have learned my lesson. You understand now by my application that I love you. The point that I'm trying to make here is as you go through this this whole episode and as Peter emphasizes these things and he says, you know all things, oida, you know all things, that's omniscience, you know, gnosko, that I love you. Peter is emphasizing the intensity of that knowledge. So all the way through here, what, what Peter has done, let me back up and say that again. Well, I mean, what John has done And what the Lord did in constructing this is he's moved from general to specific, general to specific, and then in this last and final interchange, the most specific of every synonym is used. Now, you miss that in the English, but what that drives home in the Greek is the intensity of this last interchange, that there is a resolution here. There there seems to be this conflict going on in 1 and 2, that Jesus is saying, do you love me? And Peter's getting a little bit uh, aggravated with the Lord. Yeah, you know, I love you. And then at the end, the Lord says, the Lord shifts to Phileo. He says, do you love me? Um, Yeah, he says, do you love me? And Peter finally says, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. Agapao. And he shifts back. And all of, he uses Phileo again. All this is to emphasize that Peter has learned the lesson and the priority of feeding the sheep. Now we come to a couple of important passages to show that Peter learned the lesson well. Second Peter 3.18, he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Emphasizing the fact that growth comes by understanding grace, which is the presupposition to this whole scenario, is that Peter understood grace and he was now humble and he was willing to let the Lord set the agenda. See, this is not my church. This is not some other pastor's church. No church belongs to the pastor. It's the Lord's church. The Lord sets the agenda. He defines the plan and the priorities. It's not up to the pastor to come along and change that. It's the pastor's job is to fulfill the responsibilities that Christ gave, and that is to feed the sheep. And you have to feed the 
immature sheep and you have to feed the adult sheep and you have to have a vision as a pastor for taking people from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And that's what is lacking. I quote, I quote Earl Rodmacher all the time. Ten years ago at a pastor's conference, he made the observation that the church, the evangelical church in America, is the largest nursery in the world. It's made up of spiritual babies. And the nursery workers have no vision for getting the babies out of the nursery. And that's the problem. Is pastors today are so afraid to teach anything that's second grade, third grade, fourth grade, or high school level doctrine because they want to make sure that everybody feels comfortable and can understand everything that he says. And the result is nobody grows. Nobody's putting steak on the on the plate, everybody's taking whatever they've got, putting it in the blender, grinding it up, and putting the mush on the plate, and nobody can advance to anything in spiritual maturity because pastors don't understand that God set the priority. It's Jesus' church. He builds it, and our responsibility as a pastor is to take believers from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, and we can only grow by means of understanding grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's based on understanding doctrine. That's why doctrine has got to be our highest priority, and why it's not just something to do on Sunday morning to go to Bible class, but it is a way of life. Christians will never grow to spiritual maturity until they understand that doctrine is a way of life. It's not just something else I do in life. But it is my sum total of my, my reason for living is to learn the Word of God, to have my thinking transformed so that the Holy Spirit can produce growth and fruit in my life so that I can glorify God. That's the reason we're here. Everything else is secondary. Nothing else is as important as that primary goal. It is the Word of God that is the most important thing in our life or should be, and without that... Everything else is truly irrelevant. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you that your word is so clear and that you have given us such a precise uh, instruction as to how to grow. And that we are to grow through the word of God and under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And it is due to the teaching ministry of a local church and that we have to make your word our highest priority. But it all begins with new life. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their uh, spiritual life, of their uh, having eternal life, that they would make that certain right now. Scripture says that it is by faith alone in Christ alone that we have salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for every single sin we commit in our lives. And that we appropriate that simply by accepting his death on our behalf. And Scripture says we do that by believing that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we do pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned today, that you would use them to transform our thinking. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.